Well, my friends, please stand for the reading of God's Word. As we continue our series, Getting Ready for the Advent of the Lord Jesus Christ, this morning we find ourselves in Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Remember, beloved, these are the very written words of God. Luke writes, In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Indeed, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever and may he add his blessing to it. You may be seated. Well, the other night our family sat down to watch what is in my view the very, well, maybe not the very best, but certainly the top five Christmas movies of all time. You've already heard it referred to Home Alone. Who here has seen Home Alone? Let me ask that a different way. Which poor souls of you have not seen Home Alone? You don't have to answer. For those of you who have not seen it, it's about an eight-year-old boy, Kevin McAllister, who has to protect his home from a pair of burglars when he's accidentally left home alone by his family on Christmas vacation. Well, in one famous scene, Kevin runs away from the burglars and he hides in an outdoor nativity scene by disguising himself as what? As one of the shepherds. He pulls part of the drapery off, off the set and he hides himself as a shepherd. He hid in one of those classic Nativity scenes, just like you might have at your house with Mary and Joseph, the magi, the shepherds, the animals, the stable, all adoring the baby Jesus. But the thing about these beautiful nativity scenes is that they often seal into our mind some common misconceptions about that first Christmas night. In fact, I read an article this week that lists five misconceptions about the nativity or the first Christmas night. And I've made a few observations of my own over the years. The first, the first misconception about the nativity or the manger scene is that the Magi were there with Mary and Joseph on that first Christmas night when the Magi would not visit the baby Jesus or the child Jesus for as many as two years later. What those nativity scenes or those manger scenes do is they bring together or combine Luke chapter 2, okay, that describes the birth of Jesus, our passage today, and Matthew chapter 2, which describes the visit of the Magi. They kind of bring those two together when those are separated, probably by a year or two. The second common misconception is the idea that there was an innkeeper. Many more elaborate nativity scenes actually have an innkeeper. I saw one yesterday that has an innkeeper and the innkeeper's wife, okay? Now that's a misconception, 
because there was no innkeeper. And there was no innkeeper because there was no inn. We've talked about this before. We're going to talk about it again. But the article, I feel like the article was a little Grinchish. I don't mean to be Grinchish now, okay? But the article was a little Grinchish, Grinch-ish, and it lists a misconception that I do not agree with, okay? And that relates to the presence of a stable in the nativity scene. Most nativities have a stable, okay? But according to the article, there was no stable. According to the article, Jesus was laid in a manger, a feeding trough, and from the presence of a manger, the article would say we wrongly infer the presence of a stable, but Luke doesn't mention a stable, so there was no stable. But I disagree with that misconception. I think there was a stable, and you'll know why by the end. Okay, here we go. Last week we heard from Mary through Luke, okay, about the angel Gabriel, how he had appeared to her and announced to her that she would give birth to a son, a very special son, a son of David, the Messiah of the living God. And here we are, we're nine months later. Mary is in the final stages of her pregnancy. That's where Luke picks up our story. Look with me at the text, verses one through five. In those days, Luke tells us, he was an amazing historian. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. So what's going on here is Caesar Augustus, the leader of the Roman Empire, he has to fund his growing empire. The Roman Empire in the first century would have encompassed most of the known world at the time. At the height of the Roman Empire, it encompassed more than two million square miles of territory. At the time of Jesus' birth, it could have encompassed as many as a million and a half square miles. Okay, that's, that's a lot of land. That's a lot of territory. Very expensive to maintain and defend. We're having debates in our own country right now about how to fund the military and infrastructure. There's debate about what infrastructure is. You know, like roads and bridges and airports and things like that. And those things, they're not free. Those things cost money. Tax revenue is levied to pay for those things, okay? This is nothing new. This has been going on from the very beginning. The registration that Luke mentions would likely have had people all over Israel go back to their ancestral hometown so they could register for their property. Okay, we don't know exactly how they did it, okay? But most likely what's happening here is Joseph and Mary are having to go back to Bethlehem. That's where Joseph's family would have been from. 
These registrations likely happened about every 14 years. Joseph was old enough now to register for the land or the property that was now in his name, and he would go enroll on the tax registry of Bethlehem so that taxes could be levied, levied based on his property or the land he would have owned. We don't know exactly for sure how all that worked, but we do know, we do know this would have been incredibly difficult on Mary and Joseph. Incredibly difficult, especially for Mary, who was great with child, to travel from Bethlehem in the north all the way, I'm sorry, from Nazareth in north all the way to Bethlehem in the south. Do you have any idea how many miles that would be that this pregnant mother would have had to travel? Okay, she wouldn't have had a car. She wouldn't have been able to Uber. Okay, those of you who have had children, can you imagine being eight or nine months pregnant and have to travel over a hundred miles through some patches of particularly difficult terrain. I cannot imagine how hard that would have been. It's very likely that the humiliation and suffering of Jesus Christ, it actually started here. It actually started with Jesus in utero. They've done studies. Babies can be greatly affected by the stress hormones of the mother. Can you imagine how difficult how stressful, how hard this journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem would have been. It started here. The suffering of Jesus started here. It was a painful reminder that they were still very much under the dominion of a foreign power. There likely would have been consequences had Mary and Joseph not gone. Otherwise, they would have deferred, right? This was not like jury duty. A couple years ago, I got called up for jury duty during a time that I was going to be home for vacation in the Carolinas, simply checked the box, deferred, so I could come back later. Had that been a possibility, Joseph and Mary probably would have done that. But that wasn't a possibility. There probably would have been great consequence had they not gone. Look at verses 6 and 7. And while they were there, in Bethlehem, it's interesting, you know what the word Bethlehem means? It means house of bread. This is where the bread of life was going to be born. And while they were there in Bethlehem, the time came for her, for Mary, to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the end. Now, this relates back to some of the misconceptions that we reviewed just a few minutes ago, okay? The ESV indicates that Jesus was laid in a manger. A manger is what again? It's a feeding trough for animals. The ESV indicates that Jesus was laid in a manger because why? There was no place for them in the inn, okay? And many nativity scenes include an innkeeper because of this translation. And as you've heard me say before, a few years ago, okay, and I'm just going to tell you right now, you need to put on your thinking cap because I'm going to provide some new information that you may not have gotten before, okay, as we freshen up the Christmas story, all right? So if you have some coffee, take a sip, 
here we go. You probably remember me saying that there's a consensus among scholars today that the Greek word translated as in and Luke 2.7, okay, that that's a wrong translation, okay? The Greek word that's translated as in, the Greek word is kataluma, okay? It's the same word that Luke uses in Luke 22 to describe the guest room or the upper room of the home that Jesus and his disciples used for the Last Supper, for the Passover feast. Jesus told his disciples to go and find this upper room, this guest room. The Greek word is kataluma. Now Luke does mention a commercial inn in the book of Luke. little trivia question. Where would Luke have mentioned the presence of a commercial inn in the book of Luke? Can you remember? It's in the parable of the Good Samaritan. Okay, when the Samaritan comes by the man who had been beaten by the side of the road, um, you know, he, he saves the man. He takes the man to an inn. He pays two denarii to the innkeeper to care for the man. Okay, the Greek word for a commercial inn there is pandakion. It's a different word, okay? Mary and Joseph were not turned away from an inn or by an innkeeper. They were turned away. There was no place for them in the guest room. The guest room would have been the guest room of a private residence. Okay? So here's my question for you. Here's where we need to think a little bit. Okay, I might test you later to see if you can recall this. What are the implications that there was no room for Mary and Joseph not at an inn? What are the implications of the fact that there was no room for Mary and Joseph in the guest room of a private residence? What are the implications of that? Okay. Scholars go two ways with this. This is where the kind of the new information comes. Scholars go two ways with this. In one scenario, it's actually better for Mary and Joseph. They actually get an upgrade. And I'll explain what that means. In another scenario, it's worse. There's no vacancy. Not in an inn, but among their own relatives. Okay. Scenario number one. All right, are you with me? I reviewed this with Stephanie last night. She said, honey, you're going to have to tell them to buckle up, okay? <laughs> All right, so here we go. Scenario number one. Both scenarios translate this word as guest room. Not in, but guest room, okay? And so as the first scenario goes, don't imagine in your mind's eye Mary and Joseph turned away by a less than gracious innkeeper or by Joseph's own family. According to the first view, Jesus was born in the main room of a family home. You're like, what? Okay, so they've done archaeological digs in Bethlehem, all over Palestine, okay? So imagine in your mind's eye a first century Jewish home. And there could be three parts to a first century Jewish home. You would walk into a door, walk in the door, um, and there would be, uh, let's say, a small room into which you would enter, and by day, that would be a work room. 
And by night, that's where you would bring the animals for security and for warmth. And just adjacent to this workroom slash room for the animals at night, adjacent to that was the family room, a larger room. And the rooms kind of would, would have flowed together between the rooms. Now, archaeologists have found this. Between the rooms, there would have been, there could have been stone mangers etched into the floor. Okay, are you with me? So, I guess the, the partition, in a sense, that would separate the workroom from the family room, they found these mangers etched into the floor, and that would be the separation between the rooms. And so, in the first scenario, there's no place or no room for Jesus in the guest room. So the guest room would have been above the main room or in a room right outside, okay, attached to the building. So in the first scenario, Joseph comes to his relative's home. There's no room for them in the upper room or the guest room. So Mary and Joseph are invited actually into the house. They get an upgrade of sorts, and Mary is helped by the people in the house to give birth to Jesus. And the reason he's in a manger is because he's right there in the main family room of the house with the manger right there. So that's view number one. I call that kind of the upgrade room or the upgrade scenario, okay? That scenario, or I would just ask, what do you think about that scenario? Does that change your view of the first Christmas night? Okay, it would change my view. That view to me does not make much sense. Okay, because the family that would make room for the Lord Jesus, for Mary and Joseph, and would assist Mary in giving birth to this child, the family that would invite them into their own family room, the main family place, when Jesus was born, that same family would not put him in a manger. That would be like you serving as a midwife for a woman about to give birth to a child, caring for her, helping her, inviting her into the main, home, main room of your house. The child is born and then you bring the dog bed over, okay, and put them on the dog bed. That doesn't make any sense to me whatsoever. I think the second scenario is more likely. It's that Mary and Joseph were not turned away from an angry innkeeper. Mary and Joseph were turned away from their own family. Probably because of the stigma and shame of Mary being pregnant out of wedlock. Okay, in that scenario, it's worse. The humiliation of Jesus being born in a manger, it has an edge to it an extra edge, the fact that he is rejected by his own family and has to give birth, like I said, in a stable. So there is a cave right now that is identified in Bethlehem as the cave in which Jesus was born. Do you know how far back that tradition goes that Jesus Christ was born in a cave? It is incredibly ancient. The idea that Jesus Christ was born in a cave goes all the way back to 150 A.D. Where Justin Martyr writes the following. Justin Martyr was born in 100 A.D. 
in Neapolis, which is just 30 miles from Bethlehem. And he tells us where Jesus was born. He writes, when the child was born in Bethlehem, since Joseph could not find lodging in that village, he took up his quarters in a certain cave near the village. And while they were there, Mary brought forth the Christ and placed him in a manger. The fact that Jesus was placed in a manger was a sign of humiliation. That he was put in the feeding trough of an animal. He gave up the glory of heaven to be born and placed in a feeding trough. There are two other independent sources, extremely early, that identify the birthplace of Jesus as that cave. Beloved, the fact that Luke 2.7, Cataluma, guest room, the fact that it's a guest room and not an inn makes things much more difficult for the Lord Jesus. It reinforces the magnitude of what he gave up for us. I mean, look at the irony. The passage starts out with Caesar Augustus in his throne room issuing a decree. He would have enjoyed a level of health and wealth and comfort and luxury unparalleled in history. And this census was going to make sure that it stayed that way. Contrast that with the king of kings who enjoyed a level of glory and majesty far beyond anything Caesar Augustus could ever imagine and he voluntarily gave it up. To be subject to the sinful decree of Caesar Augustus. He gave it up to be rejected by his own family. He gave it up to be born in a cave, in a manger, in a feeding trough. Why would he do this? Well, it was love. It was love that compelled him to do it. Love for you and love for me. That's why he gave it up. Can you imagine being loved with a love like this? This is what Christmas is all about. The incarnate Son of God who gave up eternal glory with his Father to be born of a woman. As Dave said, born under the law, under the demands of the law. Born in a cave, born in a feeding trough for you and me. When you realize what the Lord Jesus gave up for you and the reason he did it, you can't help but be changed. Here's what change looks like according to Paul. Paul writes, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if you have any comfort from his love, then each of you should look not only to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Paul writes, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, something to be held on to at all cost. But he made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, Luke would say, being born in a manger. It's safe to say that the Lord Jesus Christ put your interest in mine above his own. Martin Luther once said about this, he asked a question. Luther says, are you afraid? Are you afraid of God? Then come to him, lying in the lap of the fairest and sweetest young girl 
you will see how great is the divine goodness which seeks above all else that you should not despair. Trust him, he writes, trust him. Here is the child in whom is salvation. Luther writes, these are his, his words, to me, there is no greater consolation given to mankind than this, that Jesus Christ became a man, a child, a baby, playing in the lap of his most gracious mother. Who is there whom this sight would not give comfort? And so here is what overcomes the power of sin, death, hell, a guilty conscience, and guilt. If you come to this gurgling baby and believe that he has come not to judge you, but to save you, that is where salvation is found. Beloved, this child came to give up the glories of heaven, to be born in a manger because he loves you and to save you. This is the meaning of Christmas. Pray with me, our gracious God and Father, we are amazed at your word. We haven't even scratched the surface. It is, we really can't comprehend the significance, um, the implications of what it meant, Lord Jesus, for you to give up the glories of heaven to take on flesh, to be born in a stable, in a cave, and be placed in a manger, to take the form of a servant. We can't wrap our minds or hearts around the implications of that and that you did it for love's sake because you loved us and you put our interest above your own. Father, this Christmas, I pray that the wonder of this, the magnitude of this, the glory of this, Holy Spirit, take this truth and change us and mold us and make us more like Jesus. Lord, like him, help us to put the interest of others above our own. Like him, help us to love people. Father, like you love people. Help us to serve others in humility and grace because of what the Lord Jesus did for us in his advent in his incarnation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.